Let's close our time in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, this day, what hope there is for every single one of us in the things that we have sung this morning. We've sung about your goodness, even your graciousness that's on display, the fact that you've given us another day. and None of us paid anything for this day. You just gave it to us. Then we sing about your goodness and your faithfulness, the power of your resurrection in our lives, the journey that we have been on, the way that we can trust you. And right now, Father, on my heart, it's the words of that song that we sang, that we can run to you again and again and again. You don't get tired. You don't get disappointed. You invite us to come back again and again. So I pray for some people this morning, right here in this room, people that feel lost, feel like everything's confusing and clouded. They don't know which way to go. They don't know which way is right. They don't know which way has hope. This morning, you're inviting them to run to you. I pray that they would. There are people here right now in this room who feel overwhelmed by life. Feels heavy, feels crushing. The pain is beyond what they can put in words or the disappointment. Right now, they can run to you, Father. I pray you'll help them do that. There are some here who've said, I hope that I hope that I go to heaven when I die. I hope that I know Jesus. I hope that I'm a Christian. But right now they can run to you. And they can find out you, you welcome them in. You include them through the blood of Christ through the resurrection of our Savior. So Father, I pray that your people and those who you want to be your people would run to you now. That we would run to you in confidence. We would run to you knowing that you are our hope for this life. That we would find in you every single thing we need, even how to run to you. Even how to open our hearts to you. That we would find it in you. We need your power. We need your presence. We need you at work in our lives. So right now, we give ourselves to you. Speak now in the service as you've already met with us. Continue to work in our hearts, we pray. For it's in the name of our Savior we ask it. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Have a seat this morning. And what a wonderful thing to meet together with the Lord of the universe and the Savior of our souls, isn't it? So glad that you are here today, and uh, I'm so glad for the work that God does and offers to do in our lives. So uh, if you are new or newer, and we have never had uh, you register with us at our Connection Corner, please do that this morning. We would love to know who you are, how we can help you just out these doors. Uh, we would love for you to sign up with us. Uh, church family, glad that you're here today. I want to point us to communion, which we'll have at the end of the service. If this is your first time with us for communion, uh, what we're going to do is, is instead of maybe, maybe you've been at other churches, maybe you haven't, we're going to celebrate this supper, these symbols of the Lord that he gave to us at the end of our service together. But we're not going to do it in the chairs that we're sitting in. We're going to do it around the edges of this room. 
So when we get done in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, I'm going to invite you to find a spot around the edges of the room, and we're going to come serve communion there. And we'll, we'll talk about how it connects to what we're talking about this morning. And, uh, and, and I think it's a, a really precious time for us as a church family, kind of around a table without a table, kind of as a family sharing this meal and taking in the reason that Jesus gave it to us. If for any reason you are not comfortable participating, join us in the circle. First thing we do is pass these cups. When the cups come to you, pass them by, and you can just observe. No one will make you feel bad. No one will embarrass you in any way. But if you know Jesus and you want to participate, even if this is your first week here, we would love for you to remember the Savior of our souls and the sacrifice that he made through communion with us today. So you are welcome to be a part of that. All right, we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we were in this series back in July, so we're going to come back to it. And uh, we're going to take a little bit of time here to reorient ourselves to the book of 2 Corinthians. Today we're going to talk about restoring. I call today's message, We Are Restorers. So as we read the New Testament, as we read a lot of the things in the New Testament, they are essentially letters. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the town, the, the, the town of the city of Corinth, right? So many times what letters do in the New Testament is they help us in unique ways. We read the story of Jesus or we read the story of the Exodus and we learn from watching what people do, right? Here, we get a peek into this actual conversation that's going on between real people in the first century, people who are a part of the church. And we learn in a different way by watching how they interact. Paul has written and visited Corinth before, and now he is writing to them. So what I want to show us today, and this is part of like reorienting and even like setting up what we want to talk about today. Today's passage that goes from the end of chapter one into chapter two shows us the work that Paul is doing to pursue restoration with the Corinthians. There is a, a break in their relationship. There is a problem. There is struggle. There is criticism flying around. And in that, Paul is going to pursue restoration, reconciliation. He's going to pursue healing with them. And what I hope that we see today is this foundational truth of what it means to follow Jesus. If we are believers, then we are restorers. That is what we are in our very nature. Because when you serve and follow someone who rose from the dead, you start to believe that anything's possible to be restored, right? Amen. So we are restorers. Now, I know this is a dangerous topic, so I tread carefully here. Because many of you sitting here will, will hear what I have to say, and you will sort it through a lot of pain you have in your life from brokenness. And when we talk about believers are restorers, it can become so overly simplified that it discourages you. You think I must be defective since I can't accomplish that everywhere in every way. I don't think it's super simple. Obviously, there's a whole book here under inspiration of, of the Spirit about restoring. So I don't think it's a quick, easy thing. And I don't dismiss the pain that comes. I also am not saying that because believers are restorers, that every single relationship we have will be restored. Just because I know Jesus doesn't mean people like me. There are people who think I'm a terrible person right now, like me, right now, think I'm a terrible person. That's what it is. 
This is how life is. There's no magic to it. It doesn't happen immediately. I mean, Paul has been interacting with this church in Corinth for eight years at this point. And they're still like, eh, Paul, I don't know. Right? I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul. If the Apostle Paul walked in here, I think we would like be like amazed at him. They were like, yeah, we, we can do better. Right? So eight years later, he's, he's writing under the power of the Holy Spirit. He's been taught by Jesus himself. And this is a bumpy road. So I think every one of us should expect a bumpy road in restoration. And know that some things will stay broken because the work it takes to restore it is generally more than people want to put in. It's not because Jesus isn't able. It's not because resurrection power isn't enough. It's because people are like too much. There's too much humility required. There's too much honesty. There's too much accountability, right? Can't do it. They pull the ripcord, the circuit breaker trips, and off they go. But the fact is, whether that happens all the time or whether that ever happens in a specific situation, believers being restorers, we do the work. We root for restoration, knowing that in the end it may stay more broken than we hope, but we're willing to walk into the struggle and work to fix it because we stay, we remain hope-filled people because a God who has shown us the power of the resurrection is a God who can do anything. So, 2 Corinthians, let's look at the context. Before we get into the words that Paul says, you need to know a little bit about the context so you can understand what's happening here. So somewhere along the way in 1 Corinthians, Paul promised to come back and visit this church. He promised to come back and visit them again, and then he didn't come. At this point in time, he had not come back since the last promise he made. He had sent a letter to correct and confront them on issues that needed to be addressed. He talks more about that letter in chapter 7, so there's a little bit of context to that that we could get, more information that we could have. But it's a really important part of understanding the Bible is understanding the context. You don't get to make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And I would say be careful as you listen to people on TV or in books that want to say, well, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. Maybe read around it a little bit. Maybe read the rest of the book a little bit, right? Like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, people like to bring this up a lot. The Bible says women should be silent in church. And if they have questions, they should ask their husband at home. Wait, did I hear an amen? Wait, what? Uh-oh. We got problems here. So some churches have taken that to mean, literally, when a, when a woman walks into a, whatever part of the church they've designated as the part, there is no, no nothing comes, they, they could never sing and worship, they, they need to be silent, right? The problem is, three chapters before that, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, gives instruction on women praying and prophesying. So clearly, and he's talking about in church, so clearly there is a uh, you have to, in context, understand what he is saying and what he isn't saying by reading around it. You can't oversimplify scripture, right? So some of what we're talking about here as we talk about 2 Corinthians is we can't disconnect one part from the other. It's part of our submission to God's revelation and by extension, our submission to God himself that we try to take the word of God for what it actually means, for what Paul intended for us to understand. And so some of that is understanding the situation around it. Paul has said, I'm gonna come and he doesn't come. And so 
the Corinthians are kind of over Paul as an apostle. They're like, he's a nice starter apostle. But now we've got real power. We've got real apostles. And the evidence that they use is that Paul didn't come when he said he would, meaning he's not as reliable or as trustworthy as he presented himself. So this is what Paul is addressing in the part that we read today, okay? Also, and uh, just as an add-on, is there are, there's a, a narrative around Paul that if God really liked Paul, his life wouldn't be such a mess. He wouldn't get tortured all the time and, and people want to kill him. If, if Paul were really an apostle, everything would be going smoothly. And so on that very spot, the book of 2 Corinthians is very on point for the church today because we hear far too often that knowing God and following him brings an end to any significant problems or struggles. All should be fixed. You should be healed. You should have money. You should, everybody should love you, right? Like that, we hear that. And sometimes we even expect that. Like, God, I helped my part of the deal. What's going on? My life's a mess. So as, as they criticize Paul for being someone who is persecuted and imprisoned and, and, and at times even taken for dead, they're saying, if God really liked Paul, he wouldn't let that happen. And, and that is the reason that they say, Paul, we can't trust you as an apostle. But that's not true. And I think if you've been discouraged by the struggles of life, 2 Corinthians is a great book for you. Two of our three core values have, have foundation and verses in chapter five. And chapter five is, is this culmination of the hope that we have in Jesus, that even if I die today, I'm not done, right? That I have an eternity ahead of me in, in the presence of Jesus, fully healed, fully whole, fully alive, regardless of what happens to me here on earth. It is a book about the hope that we actually have. And this book actually brings us to the point where we get to chapter 12, when it says what we read on Wednesday night, when I am weak, then I am strong, that God's grace is enough for me. So the Corinthians are all twisted around and Paul's going to try to show them where they're off. So he just got finished saying in, in chapter one that they should know he's trustworthy because he came and shared with them the gospel that saves their soul. And now he wants to address why I didn't come. Why did I not come? Side note, it seems likely that in the meantime, Paul had sent a messenger with the letter that, that he talks about here to explain this before, why he didn't come. So they should have known why he didn't come. But here he is writing to them again, reminding them again of what he had said, and hopefully trying to resolve this misunderstanding. So as we talk about restoration, just a little quick side note, the process of restoration is quite repetitive. It is filled with opportunities, let's call them opportunities, opportunities for patience because misunderstanding reigns. Even I misunderstand myself at times. The reflection I get in conflict many times helps me see myself more clearly. So it may be a struggle and that struggle may be a sign that it's not going to work but it also may be a sign that we just need to trust the Lord and keep being faithful. So verse 23 is where we're gonna pick up in chapter one. It says this, Paul says to them, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith that you stand firm. So what Paul says to them is, listen, I know that you are down on my leadership. 
And I will tell you, when you lead people, it is pretty common for them to eventually mistrust you, even when you have been trustworthy in your leadership. Parents, can any parents testify to this? You just hate me, that's why you, right? It is a pretty normal thing that when you lead people, they will eventually misunderstand and mistrust you. I'm not getting personal here with our church. I'm just saying, this is what happened to Paul. And I can testify in my own life, this is also true. So Paul says to them, listen, you think that my absence is evidence that I don't care. I promise you it's not. And he starts by saying, I call God as my witness. Like in other words, if Jesus were standing here, I would say this to you. I would turn to Jesus and say, am I telling the truth? And he would say, yes. That's, that's the picture Paul is saying there. And beyond that, I stake my life on it. I am being as honest. He's saying to them, I want you to know that I am being as honest as I possibly can be. The reason I didn't come to you was to spare you. I wanted you to have a less painful path. And in saying that, what he does is he makes a point about leadership, especially spiritual leadership, and really about any relationship. They only work when I'm in it, not for me, but for you. Relationships, what is the foundation of relationship? We say trust, that's, that's absolutely true. But, but what'd you say generally in Christian relationship, what is one of the foundational necessities in any relationship? Love, right? Love is not self-seeking, Right? So in any relationship, if I go into that relationship, if I go in insecure, if I go in trying to heal my own hurts, if, I, if I'm all about me, I'm not really relating well. If I go into leadership and I'm all about me, I'm not really going to be doing well in, in my leadership, right? Paul says, I'm not in this for me. The reason I made the decision not to come to you was to spare you. I'm not using my leadership as leverage to force you to do what I know is right. Maybe some of us need to write that down. My leadership is not leveraged to force others to do what I think is right. What? Is that the whole point of being in charge? Is you get to tell everybody else what they should do because you're right? Paul says, no, that's not why I lead. That's not how I lead. I'm not, he's not shy on giving them instruction and teaching. Obviously, he wrote two books to them that we have here. But his goal is not just do what I say. His goal is you should know Jesus for yourselves. His hope is that the spirit will show them that his words are true and reliable and then they will choose to follow because he says, I want you to stand in your faith. At the end of that verse, it is by faith that you stand firm. Ultimately, it is faith, not right, that helps us stand firm. It is our connection and our trust with the Lord that guides and directs our lives. So the question is not, do we trust Paul? The, the question is, do we trust Jesus and follow him? Paul's supposed lack of forceful leadership is used to say he's weak and he's saying, don't you understand how this works? I'm not weak because I don't force you to do or because I don't come and beat you up. I don't show up and have a, a hard visit with you. That's not weakness. What I want is for you to know Jesus. And I thought the best way for you to know Jesus is for me to not come until you've had a chance to digest what I've written to you and respond to it. Believers, you do not want your leaders to be your strength. You want the Lord to be your strength, right? So don't fall for the, Paul says, don't fall for the trick that I'm weak or uncaring. He says, I use my leadership not as lordship, but as a way for you to know Jesus and trust him because he wants them to stand by faith. And what it, the implication is, is that they're not standing. 
They're falling. And they're falling because they're not walking by faith. They're falling because they're letting doubt and fear and distrust reign in their life. So Paul says, to, I want you to understand, I didn't come to you, and, and God is my witness, I didn't come to you for your good because I want you to stand by faith. And then he goes on, chapter two, verse one. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've aggrieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So you feel Paul's heart here as he writes these words. You feel how much he cares about them and how much he's connected to them. Paul established this church in Corinth on one of his missionary's journeys around 50 AD, around AD 50. He stayed there for more than a year and a half. He's come back to visit in the interim. He's written a few letters of which 1 Corinthians is one. And he's interacted through representatives. And Paul says to them, last time was, I was with you, it was a visit filled with tears for all of us. I don't want to make another painful visit. I don't want to come back and go through that again if we can figure this out. He clearly has had a good amount of pain in this relationship. Did you know, maybe no one ever told you this, pain is a pretty normal part of relationship. Did you know that? Because all the people you're related to other than Jesus are not perfect. Every single one of them. Yes, all of them. I know you're like, Who, who's the not perfect part? All of them, every one of them. And because of that, pain is a part of relationship. So when I say we are restorers, I'm saying, how do Christians approach that reality? That we have people that will hurt us. Well, Paul has people that will hurt him. And when pain inevitably shows up, Paul says, I would rather share joy with you than grief this time, especially since the grief came from your choices. It wasn't like the grief came from like outside forces. It was you chose this and it caused us to be brokenhearted. And he says to them, because we are one in Christ, your joy is my joy. Your sorrow is my sorrow. And I want us to get back to having joy together. He's not reveling in his authority. He's not insensitive to their pain. He wishes he didn't have to keep addressing them, especially about the same things over and over and over. And for us, the reality of that can make us want to pull back. I, it's safer to be on my own. I don't need this hassle. I don't need this heartbreak. I don't need to keep walking into pain. And some of us stay stuck in the safe. What promises to keep us safe? It's how we live in a world that is more isolated, and lonely than probably any world in the history of all time. Maybe you stay stuck there because of some family norms that you grew up in, which told you that trying to fix problems is hopeless. And it may be with your family, but it isn't in Jesus Christ, right? So I don't take a one experience and plaster it all over. I learned my lesson. I'll never try that again. In some families, we grew up with uh, the idea that we just ignore problems or we just believe that problems are never resolvable. In church, as believers, as Christians, we don't let our connection to one another be our doom. 
We don't accept it as an end. Paul says, so I'm coming again. I'm writing you another letter. He didn't like, well, that last time I went there, it was all pain, so I'm done with them. I'm not talking. No, here he, are, here he is writing another letter saying, I'm coming back. And when I come back, we're going to have joy together because you're going to listen to what I say and you're going to do it and it's going to be great. Then he goes on in verses 5:11 and shows us what we do in relationships. The fact that we have brokenness, the fact that we have pain, especially among brothers and sisters of Christ, what we do is this. We seek forgiveness and restoration. That's what we do. Now, I think all of us, as I talk about this, are more aware of what others have done to us and what I would need to forgive them. But it goes both ways. If I was the one who was wrong, I take accountability and I seek forgiveness. Because I believe God can restore. I don't believe I have to edit out the parts of my life or try to make myself look as good so that the other person will forgive me. What I believe is I just bring this before Jesus and I say, listen, I did this and I was wrong and I'm sorry and I'm apologizing and can you forgive me? What do I need to do to help us fix this? That's accountability, right? Listening. It's not a quick wash it away. It's a work that we do. If we were the one wrong, we do that. If we were the one wronged, we work towards forgiving in the power of Jesus. Now, when I say that, a lot of people are like, forgive and forget. Man, if you can't do that, you are human. You, nobody forgives and forgets. I don't know anybody who forgives and forgets, but I know people who forgive in the power of Jesus. And what it starts with is taking account of what happened actually quite well. You have to, when, when in Colossians 2, where it talks about when Jesus died on the cross that we're gonna celebrate at the end of the service, it talks about taking the record of our sins and nailing it to the cross. It sounds like God took account of what Jesus paid for. And if you're gonna forgive, you probably need to take account too. And you probably need to talk about what got broken in the way. But there is work to do either way in forgiving and being forgiven. And again, I will say, granted, it doesn't always happen and isn't solely dependent on us. There are a number of relationships in my life that are not restored. And to my understanding, it's because I'm ready and the other person isn't, and that's okay, right? It, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm missing something and that's okay, right? Like I don't, all I can be is faithful before the Lord. The exception that there are places in my life that aren't restored does not wash away that there is a theme of being a Christian that we restore. So all the, the norm in my relationships with people is when I blow it, I say, I blew it. I'm sorry. And when, I, when someone else blows it and they say they're sorry to me, I say, all right, let's figure this out. Let's set this right. That is the norm. Even though there are exceptions, it doesn't negate the norm. So here's Paul, verse five. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you to was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes." So what Paul says is this, 
There's, there's a person, and, and obviously the Corinthians know who this person is. That it could be the immoral person from 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul instructed discipline. It could probably more likely someone who has led the church in something Paul has prohibited. And in this case, what Paul has said, he has harmed all of us. He's harmed the body by rejecting my leadership, by rejecting the truth, and he has hurt Paul personally. Paul says, so what we do here is we addressed it, and now we forgive. Paul's response to that thing was part of his tearful letter to them, his painful visit to them, right? Paul addresses it, and he says, the reason I wrote to you as a church is this. We cannot become disconnected just because we're hurting each other. We're still in this together, right? So he says, who you forgive, I forgive. When they hurt me, they hurt you. He's like, we're all connected in this. When one person in a church is pushing a back against God-ordained leadership, like they were pushing back against Paul, or when one person is walking in ways that are sinful, we're all wounded. Like what Paul says here, we're all grieved. We all experience the sorrow of that choice because we're connected as a body. I think this, in, in practical terms, there are people who believe that, that they have a better idea of leading a church than the, person, the people, the person that are leading the church, right? That's exactly the Corinthians. And what Paul says is this, leadership is something God put. Leadership in a home, leadership at your job, leadership is, it's something God put there. If your leaders have to be perfect in order for them to lead, good luck, Right? But it's how God ordained things to happen. And Paul says, not I'm perfect, but he says, when you try to undermine me as the leader God ordained here, and you work against it, you hurt the whole body. And the way that we deal with that is we restore. We acknowledge, we deal with it. This wrong, Paul's response here, the wrong has been disciplined. It has not been ignored. It probably was removal from the fellowship until things got made right. It got corrected within the church as the entire church recognized God's work through Paul as their apostle. And Paul said, so now we comfort and forgive. We restore unity in the bonds of love in the family of Christ. We were connected in the hurt. Now we're gonna be connected in the healing, Right? We've had the hard conversations. We've had the hard actions. Now we reaffirm our love for one another and we go forward united. There is restoration in the church of Jesus Christ. There has to be. If we have a savior who died and rose again, then there has to be restoration and forgiveness in the body of Christ. Has to be. And at the end, he says, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan. It's an interesting connection because we think it's just life. You know, people hurt us and we hurt them. And, and get, What's he saying? Satan, when there's hurt, wants to jump in there and do something. What's he want to do? Not hard to figure out, is it? He says, I don't want to be outwitted by Satan. What Satan does when you're hurt, when you think you're right and someone else is wrong and you don't go restore it, you don't go find out the truth, you don't find out what they actually thought or what they actually said or whatever, he gets in your ear and he fans the flame of that fire of hurt in you. And he keeps building it and building it and building it. Whose scheme is that? Satan. It's not Jesus. Jesus says we're restorers. We go take care of it. We go make it right. We go deal with it. That's what we do as believers. That may not have been your norm growing up. It may not be the norm 
in your relationships now, in your workplace, in your school. It's certainly not the norm in our nation, in our politics, but it is the norm for believers. Why is that? That's what we're going to do next. So I'm going to invite you to leave your stuff where it is. Find a spot around the edge of the room this morning as we celebrate together the Lord's Supper. All right, we're going to send some cups around. As soon as you find a spot, spread out into the emptier spaces. There's some up here in the front corner, some over here on the wall. What we're going to do is we're going to take the symbols that Jesus gave us, and we're going to remember his sacrifice. So there is bread and there is juice. If you have a cup, you'll hold that in your hand. Try not to make it a moving target, you know. Try not to hold it way up high. Try, you know, stay still. But then there's bread. Jesus said these symbols reflect to us his sacrifice for us. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It's a very personal thing. As the servers come around, you'll break off a piece of bread. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. These are specific reminders given to us of what our Savior did so that we could be forgiven. If you're a believer here today, what we're looking at is the price it cost for you to be washed clean. It is an incredible price, isn't it? And I want us to contemplate the forgiveness that we have received. Maybe it's been a while since you got saved and you think you're a pretty good person and you've forgotten how Jesus washed you clean. How amazing and miraculous that is. So we talk about forgiving others and pursuing forgiveness in our own lives. It's because of this that we forgive and we ask for forgiveness. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate one to another forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. We forgive because we are forgiven. We forgive because Jesus forgave you. As a matter of fact, in, in Matthew 18, where Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive? Jesus tells a whole story about a, a king who forgives this tremendous debt. And then this, the, the man who got forgiven going out and holding, throwing someone in jail who, who owed him a very small debt. We forgive because we're forgiven. And the reason I don't forgive is because I forget how much I've been forgiven. How out of place it is for me to not forgive. And what Paul says in Ephesians 4 is, we forgive as we've been forgiven. I'm a child of God. And because of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ sacrificed for me, He lives in me. So just like He forgave me, I forgive you. That's how this works. He works in me and through me. We need to understand forgiveness as we follow Jesus. So today, as we hold these things in our hand and as we take them together, I recognize forgiveness is not some theoretical idea for many of us. It's quite costly, maybe impossible to feel forgiven 
hurt to forgive. I get that. But let's let Jesus in these moments speak to our soul about forgiveness that we can receive and forgiveness that we can share because Jesus died for us and because he has forgiven us. Let's allow him to lead us in these moments as we serve together. Gentlemen.
said, whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of him. Let's close our service in order of prayer. Be dismissed, let's pray. Father, this morning, we are in this moment reminded of the sacrifice of our Savior to forgive us. We're reminded of the invitation to come and find that forgiveness, to be reminded of how desperate we needed it, how overwhelming it was to make restoration, and the lengths to which our Savior went in love for us. Pray that every person here would walk into that forgiveness, would know it in their souls, would live in it. Then, Father, help us to follow you. Help us to be people who seek and give forgiveness, restore relationships, not in our power, but in yours. That you would teach us what it means to follow you in this way. Do your work in our lives. We listen. We're ready for you to move in us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.